read along. Romans 1, 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. God, as we take this keystone text to understanding the book of Romans tonight, Lord, um, a, a verse that points to the very foundation upon which this church is built, uh, the foundation on which each and every one of us stands, Lord, the free and precious gift of your righteousness available in Jesus Christ and the message that we carry as a church. I pray in your name, Lord, that your spirit would enliven your word, that it would bring it alive for us tonight, that we would hear you speaking through it, Lord, and that we would respond. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So Paul here continues the introduction to his letter in Rome, and basically this is the final transition from just the opening up shop of introductions, who am I, what's the message I carry, who am I writing to, these types of things. Not only that, but we saw last week his heart transformed by the self-same gospel that he carries, but now he gets into his heart to carry the gospel. If you remember right, we've been Uh, looking at these last three weeks, a series we've called Priority Mail. And so we saw the first week in verses 1 through 7, the message that we carry, just the simple gospel message. And then second, last week, 8 through uh, about 13, we talked about how the gospel has transformed us, and we are not just carriers of the gospel, but recipients, and that changes the way we carry it. But ultimately... Ultimately, that's all been building up to this, this cornerstone, this part. In other words, we don't just need to know the mail, and we don't just need to read the mail. We need to carry the mail. That's the whole point. We have been called to carry a message as Christians. The church has been entrusted with a message that we call the gospel, and so it is our job to carry it. And notice that in these three verses... That's exactly what Paul talks about, and he does it in a very simple way that I think is really easy to follow. He speaks about it in three different ways. So first there in verse 14, we see that he is obligated to carry it. And then in verse 15, that he is eager to carry it. And in verse 16, that he is not ashamed to carry it. Okay, So he's obligated, he's eager, and he's unashamed. But one of the problems with reading the Bible, especially if you're not familiar with it, but this is a constant problem for us, uh, even as Christians, is that we interpret in or we add on or we see things through our own lens and so then things get skewed. In other words, we need to take some time tonight and look at this idea of obligation and responsibility. We need to look at this idea of eagerness And we need to look at this idea of being unashamed. And we have to recognize that all of those stem from, 
that self-same message that we carry. In other words, this isn't just an obligation, it's a gospel obligation. This isn't just any given eagerness, it's gospel eagerness. And even with the lack of shame here, the unashamedness that he presents, we have to make sure that we're unashamed for gospel reasons. Okay, But the other thing I want you to notice is that these three together are a lot more difficult than these three apart. It is very possible for you to feel obligated and not eager. In fact, it's even possible for you to feel obligated and ashamed. But the three together is somewhat unique in its combination. But let's just begin here with the obligation. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. Now, just for starters, that word there, obligation, almost every other time it's used in the New Testament, refers to a financial debt. He says, I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. I am in debt to wise and to foolish. He casts it in financial terms. In other words, this is a responsibility that is completely on my shoulders to bear. And notice how broad it is. When he distinguishes the difference between Greeks and barbarians, he's making a cultural distinction, which is basically all of these people and all of these people. Okay, Whether they're cultured or uncultured. And then the same thing with wise and foolish, whether they're educated or uneducated. In fact, later in verse 17, he says both the Jews and the Greeks, whether they're religious in a context that makes sense to Paul or outside of that religious context like the Greeks, it doesn't matter. Paul feels obligated to pretty much everyone. Now, I think we'd recognize right off the bat that that's a heavy debt that that's a powerful burden, that he looks around the world and he says, there is not a single person alive who I am not in debt to. Ultimately here, what we're talking about is responsibility. And Paul felt this in a special way as God's chosen apostle. Hand-selected by Jesus Christ, even before he was a Christian, presented with the fact that Jesus is alive and I'm commissioning you to tell people all over the world, you will be one of my apostles. You are one of my chosen witnesses, on par with Peter and James and John and the others uh, who walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. That is a heavy authority. In fact, it's an authority that passed away with Peter and Paul and James and John. This was the self-same authority that allowed them to compose books of the Bible. The self-same authority that allowed them to authoritatively state practice for the church with the very authority of God. And so that in and of itself is unique. But even in this letter here, the word apostle is used in a broader sense. You see, in the everyday language of Greek and in the everyday life of Rome, an apostle was just somebody who carried a messenger, a message, a representative. In fact, as we know from later in this book, in chapter 15, or it's probably more likely 16, Phoebe, this woman from a church who knows Paul, is Paul's apostle. His representative, who's carrying this very letter that we're studying today, under her arm and is therefore Paul's messenger. And in that sense... We are all apostles. We've all been entrusted with a message, and so it's appropriate for us to wrestle with this statement here and ask ourselves or recognize that we also are under obligation. 
and not just obligation to a given people. Now, those of us who are at the church here, who are members of this church living in this community, we feel a special obligation for our neighborhood. But Paul would say, no, 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 you're not just under obligation for young 30-something artistic hipsters on Capitol Hill, but other neighborhoods as well. Not just this culture, but that culture. Not just the educated, but the uneducated. He sees this obligation broadly. And guys, that's where we have to start tonight. We have to recognize that as recipients of the gospel, we have a responsibility to share it with others. Now, I don't know if you find that to be a burden. Just the fact that Paul goes on and points to his eagerness and the fact that he's not ashamed shows that there's a tendency for us to feel the weight of this responsibility bearing down on our shoulders. But let's just deal with something, because I think a lot of the times we're worried with obligations because we have a mentality informed by the gospel that says, okay, there are works, responsibilities, obligations, That's one way to live your life before God. And then there is grace that God has done the work. And so we read this and our our red flag goes up instantly and we go, wait, which is it? Am I under obligation to share the gospel or am I freely saved by it? Could it possibly be both? And the answer is evidently yes, because remember that this is the Apostle Paul. He is saved by grace. In fact, he makes some of the greatest statements about the power of grace about himself. He says this. He says that this is a truth worth stating, that Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. So he understood he did nothing to earn or deserve God's love or favor, and yet he still felt the weight, the responsibility of this obligation. In fact, I think we have to just remove this dangerous view of obligation, this responsibility that the way that we get saved, if you will, is to bring the message of salvation to others. I think we just have to analyze that for what it is. It's a Ponzi scheme, right? It's you get saved if you can bring the same message to five people and they get saved and they bring the same message, right? The whole thing just gets odd and broken down. And the truth is, it's really hard to carry a message you don't understand, Paul's whole burden in this letter is to say, look, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Look, all have sinned and are deserving of death. Look, God is freely offering in what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ, uh, relationship, righteousness, salvation, eternal life, all of these things. And yet Paul still feels obligated. Like I said, we have to understand this as a gospel obligation because if we're going to be honest with ourselves... We don't always feel the weight or the burden of this responsibility. We're not likely to be overburdened for a need to carry the gospel. For me, anyways, and I imagine it's the same for you, we're much more likely to be underburdened. To enjoy all the benefits and the joys and the uh, promises and the good things available to us in the gospel ourselves and not feel anything for those beyond us not feel anything for the barbarians and for the Greeks, not feel anything for the wise and the foolish, to not share this same burden that Paul feels. You see, why does he feel obligated? 
That's the question. That's the question that we need to answer tonight because the obligation he feels here is not because if he doesn't, God will get him. It's not because if he doesn't fulfill this, then God has given up on him. It's not, okay, I've saved you, now you better perform or I'm taking it back. That's not the issue at all. So what is it that builds this obligation in Paul's heart? Now, John Stott points out, in I think a really helpful way, that there's two ways that we become in debt to somebody. One is our own debt. In other words, we owe somebody money and we remove that debt by paying it back. The other, however, is if somebody gives you money for someone else and you're in debt to that someone else until you hand it over. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever carried a whole bunch of money for someone else? Every time I go to pay my rent and I just take that large portion of money from one bank to another, I feel like an armored truck that's not armored, right? I feel the responsibility and the burden of that money. How much more do we feel it when it wasn't ours to begin with? That we're not just making a payment from our own bank account, but somebody says, hey, you're going to see so-and-so next week, aren't you? Well, will you just take this 15 grand and will you give it to them? You feel the presence of all of that money in your wallet every single moment you have it till you hand it off. That is obligation. That is the burden of responsibility, right? And evidently here, that's more closely related to what Paul's talking about. When he says, I'm under obligation to everyone, it's the recognition that he's carrying something that's not just for him. That he's burdened with something that goes beyond his own pocketbook, but into the pocketbooks of others. Not only that, Not only is he under obligation because God has done something for the whole world, because God has given him, entrusted him with a gift for the whole world, because God has fattened his wallet, if you will, not just for his own sake, but for the whole world. But there's another aspect as well. See, like I said here, he's under gospel obligation, not normal everyday obligation. This is what I mean by that. The truth is, Paul was a debtor. Paul owed very dearly. And although he desired to pay it back and spent all of his life pursuing paying it back, ultimately what God did in Jesus Christ is just forgave him of the entire debt. It's that element. It's the forgiveness of debt that puts Paul in debt. Let me show you what I mean. If you've got a Bible, turn back all the way to 2 Kings chapter 7. So when you hit Psalms, keep going. We get to a story in the Old Testament that I think illustrates this well. Let me just set up the story for you. The city of Samaria has been surrounded by the Assyrians. And they're just sitting there waiting for Samaria to surrender or die. They've cut off all food supplies in. They've cut off all commerce. They've cut off everything. In fact, it does it in very cultural, uh, kind of ancient terms, but basically the economy is turned on its head and people are paying top dollar for the head of a donkey because that's how scarce meat is. I mean, there's not much to eat that's that enjoyable, right, on the head of a donkey. Uh, And yet this is a hot commodity right now. And so things get bad, and the prophet Elisha comes, and he says in verse 1 here, Elijah said, Hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, he says, economically, within 24 hours, everything will be restored. He continues, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, all of a sudden, we switch from the throne room of a king and a prophet to outside the city gates where four lepers are weighing their options. You know, they're playing a game show, if you will, and the game show is, which is the best way to die? Look with me in verse, chapter, or verse 3 here. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. In other words, the options are death, death, and most likely death. So we're going to choose most likely death. And realize how small the margins are here, right? What would an enemy encampment want with four poor men who have a communicable disease that there is no cure for? But they go. But look at what happens. Here's the surprise ending, if you will. Verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. In other words, here's four lepers walking, making the journey out to this surrounding ring, this encampment that has the whole city blocked down. And by the time they get there, it's a ghost town. Like the only visible sign of life is the tumbleweed rolling between the tents. And they see shoes and pieces of clothing and abandoned horses. You know, the place has evidently been deserted in a hurry. And we're given the punchline to the story that it's because God miraculously scared the entire army off. And so they just arrive. And there's nothing there. However, look at what they do. Verse 8, when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent And they ate, and they drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. This is a drastic change of lifestyle, is it not? These four lepers have gone from dying outside the city gates to wealthy, well-clothed, and well-fed just because of a happenstance journey they took to the army to surrender. But it's what's next that's important. Notice what happens here. Verse 9, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You see what happens there? Here's these four men enjoying an entire army's worth of goods. And then they suddenly realize that there's a city that's still starving. There's a city that thinks the army is still there and is therefore still surrounded. There's a city still living in despair. And like they said earlier, there's only death in the city. It's here that they say, you know what we've just encountered is good news. And it's not right for us not to go share it. You see that? It's the same obligation. These lepers would have understood Paul who said, I'm obligated to the 
Gentiles and to the Jews. I'm obligated to the wise and to the foolish because they look around and they go, okay, evidently God has done something really good here. We're under obligation to the citizens of Samaria so that they can taste the victory as well. Listen, guys, this is hard news to hear. But the real reason, the real reason we don't often feel a burden for people who do not yet know the gospel, the real reason why we don't feel the same obligation of Paul is because we don't understand how freely it's been given to us. You see, these lepers, there's no way they're taking the credit for this, right? They aren't thinking, well, I guess four lepers walking does sound a lot like the army of the Egyptians and the Hittites. Right? There's no way they can take the credit. What they realize here is that they didn't deserve anything and God has freely brought them salvation and because of that, they feel responsible to share it with others. Guys, I have the sneaking suspicion that burdened in our hearts if we, when we, not if we, when we don't feel that obligation, when we don't feel responsible to carry that same message, I have a sneaking suspicion that here is the reason. Because there's still a part of us that believes that in some way, somehow, even if it's in the most small medium, we deserve what God has done for us. We don't naturally have the same burden that we see here in the lepers and in Paul because there's something in us that says, well, I'm not as bad as they are. There's something in us that doesn't see how heavy the debt was that weighed on us before God freely forgave it in Jesus Christ. And because of that... Whatever it is, even if we can't point to what it is, ultimately we say, therefore, I'm only getting what I deserved. You see, that's the danger of all religion. If you do everything to earn God's salvation, then there's no love for other people. They get what they deserve as well. They should work harder. They should be like me. They should learn from me. But if the gospel is true and we did nothing and God did everything, if that's available to us just by trusting in what he has done, Like I said, if we went from burden with a debt that we could never pay to being completely forgiven, then the awareness of that naturally instills in us a debt to all people that they can also have that forgiven. And we experience it so often, guys. Let me give you an illustration. So just recently, Target made a big advertising mistake. In the printing of their ads, their ads should have read that they would give up to $200 for your old iPad. But instead, some printing error led the article to say at least $200. Now that's problematic. That's an issue because the truth is the original iPad is not worth $200, let alone giving enough room to make a profit like Target was hoping to do. But like most businesses, they realize they have two options. They can eat the cost of this financially, or they can eat the cost of this reputation-wise by taking back their word and then eat the cost of it financially. And so they took the, the greater or the lesser of two evils, and they chose to honor the ad. Now, the truth is, upwards of eight people have told me about this this week. The reason is because this is too good of a deal to pass up. Who would be dumb enough to leave their iPad under their bed where it's rotting, you know, uh, instead of just going and getting a $200 gift card from Target. We naturally feel burdened when we find a good deal. How much more in this case? You see, this is an obligation because Paul has to do this. 
This is obligation because of gratitude. This is obligation because of love. What God has done for Paul is so amazing and so fantastic and so undeserved that he feels obligated to share it broadly and freely. Guys, what we need most so that we're better message carriers is a greater understanding of our own need for the message. But it's not just enough to feel obligated. He doesn't just say, I'm under obligation. He continues back in the book of Romans here. In verse 15, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. I'm eager. I desire. This is something that I want to do. Now, we all realize that a lot of times obligation can feel the other way. In fact, you may be in that place right now where the logic of what we've just talked about is so clear. You know you're under obligation, but that doesn't make you eager to share. In fact, you may just feel the weight of it. But, but, there's also a negative type of eagerness that we need to deal with. You see, plenty of people are eager to share the gospel for the wrong reason. If the reason that you tell other people about Jesus is to further justify yourself, that's not the eagerness that Paul has here. If you do it because you desire to prove yourself right and them wrong, in other words, your primary mode in evangelism is winning an argument, that can be very eager but it's not obligated. It has nothing to do with what God's done in your life. It has nothing to do with what God wants to do for that other person. It's completely and utterly removed from love. It's generated out of pride. That type of eagerness has no place in the gospel. But nonetheless, here it says that he's eager. The reason the reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel here, most importantly, is not just to get the burden off his back. Because that's sometimes what generates our eagerness, right? Is we feel a responsibility, so we just want to get it done as soon as possible. So it's not weighing on us anymore, so we can check it off the list, so we can say, okay, now I've done my part, the rest is on your shoulders. You know how I know that's not the eagerness Paul has here, that he's not just checking responsibility off the list, just fulfilling his role, making sure at the end of the day that he can punch his time card and accurately feel like he's done a good job? It's because he tells us here earlier that he spent hours, regular, continuous time in prayer, praying for the people in Rome. You know, just to state the obvious here, that's a different type of eagerness. This is an others-oriented eagerness and not a self-oriented eagerness. This isn't, I don't want to feel so bad. This isn't, I need to get this out of the way. This is, I'm excited for you to hear this. This is, I don't have anything better I can give you except Jesus Christ. This is, I can't wait to tell you what God has done in my life. Right? We can see how both of those would be eager, and I think we can also see how very clearly... Paul's eagerness is of the second type here. But there's something that often holds us back from that eagerness. And it comes with this concept of shame. Notice here how he begins verse 16 with the word for. 
He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome because, and then he tells us why. Do you see that? So we start here at ground level, and then he moves into the basement. He says, do you want to know the foundation of my eagerness? Do you want to know where that stems from, what's caused by it? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, if we're going to be honest, the thing that often keeps us from being eager, the thing that keeps us from desiring to share it with other people is shame. And Paul just comes out on the table and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, once again, it's possible to have the wrong type of unashamedness. It's possible, once again, like we talked about with eagerness, to make the gospel a point of comparison that makes you better than other people, that you are in the know and they are not, that you are right and they are wrong. Shame doesn't generally manifest itself there. However, we've already dealt with that. Notice, nonetheless, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Notice he doesn't stop there. There's a second basement. There's a deeper foundation. Let's look at the levels here. I'm eager to preach because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, he continues here halfway through verse 15, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, because, going even lower, in in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. as, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's just take this apart. First reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God. You see, there's a litany. That's right, a litany. A litany of reasons why we may be ashamed of the gospel. One of them is that we're ashamed of our own ability to present it. One of them is we're worried that we are not capable of you know, giving it the razzle-dazzle that it deserves, that we don't have the power in and of ourselves to convert anybody. And to tell you the truth, that is a right and accurate way to feel. If you're coming at it the other way and you think that, okay, I've got everything it takes, I've got all my arguments locked down, I know the truth so well and I speak so loud that no one will be able to resist, you're, you're going to find yourself in a different place. You're going to find yourself scratching your head, disappointed, confused, let down. Spurgeon once said, I can always tell my own converts because after a while they're not converts anymore. He understood this principle. He was a very powerful speaker, but the danger in that is sometimes all the power was false. Here, let me give you an illustration. The Bible declares evangelism or sharing with people the word of God to planting seeds. Okay? Jesus does this on many occasions. He says that it's this seed, the word that we carry, that is put in the earth and it grows into, it bears fruit. In one place, he actually does that to warn us about the different soils of people's hearts, that not all listeners are equal. That some will allow the message just to be completely snatched away by the devil and will never actually hear it. That others will receive it with joy... But there will be no depth whatsoever, and so it won't actually grow. And as soon as they butt up against the difficulties of the world, they'll just throw it aside, and it won't grow. Or those who, in the same way, allow weeds in their lives, other concerns, other important things, other temptations and things, and it will eventually choke out the power of the gospel. 
But the danger of us thinking, I'm not good enough to present it. I don't have the talent or the skills. I stutter. I mumble. I have nothing to say is that we're expecting that the way farming works is that the farmer goes out there and there's stage lights and there's music and there's a performance and, you know, there's, uh, there's just this epic presentation and he digs the hole glamorously and he prances around the hole and he holds the seed in the air, you know, and then he slams it into the ground as if any of that produces life. The power that grows a plant is not in the farmer, but in the seed. It doesn't matter if he spits it out of his mouth from the center of a cherry. It has the self-same power to grow an entire tree. As if it's got all, you know, the presentation of a Vegas show. It makes no difference whatsoever. That's why Paul is not ashamed. He's not ashamed because the gospel is in and of itself the power of God. The message we carry is a seed capable of life. And so it doesn't matter our abilities or our capabilities. In fact, Paul, if you're reading closely between the lines in his letters, was probably not a very good speaker. Yes, he writes powerful and tremendously logical letters, but apparently, according to 1 Corinthians, he was mocked in his presence as he stood before the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had an entire school devoted to rhetoric and to speech. And so Paul shows up and he's tiny and he's shaking with fear and trembling, it says. And yet, powerfully, lives are changed. The gospel bears root. In fact, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified so that you would know your salvation is the power of God and not of men. In other words, he had to make effort so that they could make no mistake that he had nothing to offer them except for God's power and the gospel. Okay? So, he's unashamed because the gospel is power of God. Second, it's the gospel is power of God for salvation. See, the second reason we bear a lot of shame when it comes to evangelism is because we're obsessed with the judgment part. We're worried to carry a message of judgment. We don't want to seem intolerant. Now, the Bible requires that we rightly diagnose patients. Okay? When Jesus said, you are the salt of the world, one of the things salt does is it makes people thirsty. In other words, we should create in people a longing for the gospel. Or, let me put it a different way, we are doctors and we need to help people understand their diagnosis so that they'll readily take the cure. So there is a side where we have to be honest, and I'm not saying that we should dumb down the message and act as if it's salvation for all and there's no ounce of judgment in it. The truth is there's something beyond judgment available. Even Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. He said the world already stands condemned. The gospel is not bad news, hell, it's good news. And so we don't need to be ashamed because ultimately what we're bringing to the table is not judgment, but salvation. And even when we come to somebody, we don't have to cast their entire future and say, thus saith the Lord, you're damned to hell. Instead, we get the greatest message to carry at all, which is thus saith the Lord, Jesus died for your sins. And of course, there's a relationship between the two, but there's also a difference in emphasis. The message we carry is good news. It's the message of salvation. And so we need not be ashamed. 
Not only that, but it continues on here, that it is the message of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, I think another reason that we bear this shame sometimes is because the truth is, we're not sure the gospel is big enough. We're not sure the gospel is powerful enough. Yes, it was capable of changing my life, but can it change that guy's life? Can it really fix her circumstances? Can I be honest with you as a pastor? About a month ago, we did an entire series devoted to massive and heavy mental problems, to depression and anxiety and bitterness. Do you know why we did that? Not only did I see that many of us struggle with those things, but I found myself wondering if something more was needed to help with those things. I found myself thinking, is it possible that Jesus just isn't good enough to fix these things? And so we did that series so that God could once again prove himself capable. At least that's my personal side of it. Like I said, it was more than that. But here's the thing that we need to keep in mind. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That it's not the quality or even the quantity of persons who respond to the gospel. It is available and capable of saving all, that there is no one beyond the reach of the love of God because of the distance that Jesus has gone, that there is no one who is too far gone, sinned too much, crossed that final line and is therefore unreachable with the gospel. And because it's the power of God in and of itself, we have no idea when that power is going to take root and completely change a life. But sometimes our shame gets in the way and we just write people off before we even share. And we think to ourselves, well, if that guy wanted to hear the gospel, then he wouldn't be living like that. We forget so quickly what it was like when we were saved. I know some of you have grown up right in the context of a building and a group like this. And I grew up on the fringes of one as well. But the truth is, if people had really known me in high school, this church that I kind of drifted in and out of. They would have written me off just like they did my friends. They would have stamped me as, in, as you know, on a path, and that path heads straight to hell, and there's no interrupting that path. I watched them turn away my friends from attending church, one because he was stoned out of his mind, and another because he didn't shape up for the dress code. Do you see what that is? That says, gospel can do nothing for that person. It's foolishness. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he finishes here in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that is a difficult phrase. How in the world does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? And the church has come at this from three different angles because righteousness is kind of a thick concept. So there's God's righteous character. The righteousness of God can refer to the fact that God is and of himself righteous. Okay? There's also his righteous activity, that the things God does are right. The gospel could be revealing that. But the one that makes the most sense in this context is the righteousness imputed to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, what makes us unashamed of the gospel, what makes the gospel powerful, is that it's foreign righteousness. 
that we're not just coming to someone and saying, pull up yourself by your own bootstraps, or if you can just stick to the program, or if you can just stay sober long enough to get to the end of the line, or whatever it is, but we're coming and saying, there is a righteousness that's freely available to you. That what's required by God is offered to you, even though it's external, even though it's outside, it's that righteousness of God that is revealed. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that's ultimately the issue. The issue is that we as human beings are so flawed on the inside that no amount of wisdom, no amount of self-control or the perfect 12-step program is going to make us righteous. We don't need a tune-up or to be restored. We need to be regenerated. The Bible puts it in these terms. It basically says that the heart that that is inside you is broken and cannot produce life. And therefore, what God has done is he has implanted in you by a heart transplant, a new heart. In fact, his very own heart. He doesn't just give you somebody's righteousness. He gives you his own righteousness. In other words, this is an act of God's righteousness, going back to his character, not because it's pass-fail and you're just so close, I'm just going to grade on a curve and push you right over the edge. No, he is giving you a perfect score. It's a completely different thing available, and he says here that uh, it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, revelation in the Bible always implies something very important. It, can't, it means that it cannot be discovered or found on its own. If it's revealed, that means that it is hidden to the degree that the only way you can know it is if somebody opens their mouth. Okay? So no turn of a spade, no uh, amount of meditation is going to get you to see this available righteousness of God. It was revealed. By his desire, he's making it known. And look at it, it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. There we have another really difficult phrase. It can be translated or understood in a handful of different ways, but the one that seems the most likely, from faith to faith, means from beginning to end, it's of faith. In other words, if it's foreign righteousness, it's not 95% God's doing and 5% your own. It's not you owe $1,000 and you only have five. It's you're $1,000 in debt and your pockets are empty and you're forgiven at that point. In other words, God isn't meeting, where, meeting you where you're at and making up or compensating for the difference. It's just by faith from beginning to end. All of it is of faith. And he finishes saying this. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Martin Luther had somewhat of a love affair with this letter, but not always. Originally, the letter of Romans and these verses in particular were a constant burden to his life. Because here's what happened to Luther. He got caught in a really nasty storm and it scared him so bad that he was going to die that night. He promised himself to God as a monk that he would surrender his life and service for the rest of his life to God. He, that he would be a virgin for the rest of his days and give up the right to marriage. That he would live meagerly the life of a monk and devote himself to God. And that's how afraid he was to die. But he discovered very quickly that that led to a hatred of God. That he saw himself as a slave. And when he would read this phrase, the righteousness of God, all he would hear is judgment. All he would hear is, this is God's standard and I don't measure up. Even though I'm doing all these things, my conscience still convicts me of sin and I know that I'm not capable. And he was burdened by it. 
And one day he was meditating on this verse and he got to this quote from Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith and it clicked. And he realized that the righteousness of God here was that foreign righteousness, not the righteousness of God's judgment, but the gift freely offered in Jesus Christ, that by faith he could be righteous enough for God. In fact, he would have God's self-same righteousness. This is what Paul says in another place. He says that what happened when Jesus was dying on the cross is that he who knew no sin became sin so that we ourselves might become the very righteousness of God. Paul loved that verse too. He called it the great exchange. That Jesus took our debt and gave us his riches. That he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And we see here that that comes solely by faith and he points back to the book of Habakkuk. Now, that's a minor prophet, and you're probably not very familiar with it, so let me give you the synopsis. Habakkuk is a prophet in Israel, and he's really concerned because he looks at these people who are supposed to be the people of God, who have the very oracles and the covenant that God has made, who have known God personally like no other nation on earth, and he realizes that they are filthy in sin, that they're deserving of judgment, and he's frustrated. He goes, basically, God, how can you let your people who represent you get away with living like this? And God says, well, I'm doing something, but you're not going to believe it. Habakkuk, you know, like most of us would say, says, try me. And God says, you know the Babylonians? Those wicked, terrible people who are sweeping across the globe like a plague? I'm going to use them to judge Israel. And Habakkuk goes, I can't believe it! How could you possibly do that? And he starts to explain, how is it that you being so just can use a people even more evil than us to bring about judgment? You see, but that shows a flaw in his understanding. Do you see what he has there? He has tears, gradation, levels of righteousness. And he basically says, look, we deserve some bad things as a nation, but not like them. And God goes on to explain that he's going to do this in such a way that his justice will be intact. That even for this vessel of judgment, Babylon, as they rush through, that they will also be judged for their sins. And the book finishes with what we call a theophany. In other words, he envisions God as if he just shows up on earth and sets everything right. And he begins to shake so much he realizes that it's not just them, Israel, that stands before God under judgment. And it's not just them, Babylon, but that God's holiness is so deep that he himself is in trouble. It's no longer, you know, I just have to be in the top 50%. That whole idea breaks down. It's not, but aren't I more righteous than him? It's, woe is me, as Isaiah says, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And right in the middle of that letter, God says to Habakkuk, but the righteous will live by faith. In other words, he says that the righteousness that you need, Habakkuk, is available through you trusting in me. That that's the determining factor. And Habakkuk finishes the letter in a really beautiful way. Let me read it to you.
He sees all these things. He's looking at the judgment is coming. He recognizes that he doesn't understand, and he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer. He makes me tread on the high places. He gets the point. He recognizes that his salvation is available not on if he earned it, but his salvation is in God. That God himself is his strength. That that is the determining factor. That righteousness, if you will, is available as a free gift. And righteousness comes through faith. Now, we may have lost track on where we're going, but this is the main and primary reason why we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's because it's been so powerful and so capable and so transformative in our own lives. It's because we didn't bring anything into the table that makes us deserve it or earn it. It's because God did something that we could not do to a degree that we could not accomplish, and it accomplished something that we couldn't even imagine. And it's freely available to us just by stopping trying to earn it, just by no longer seeking to be our own Lord and Master and Savior and just resting in what Jesus has done. There's no shame there. There's nothing left to be ashamed of. In fact, it is our greatest boast. It is the thing that we are most proud of. We have nothing in this to point to ourselves and say, this is what I stand on. This is my value as a person. This is the identity that I bring to the table. This is my boast. Like Paul, we basically say, I'm not going to boast unless I boast in Jesus Christ. Jesus. 